A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Andor Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John. And this is our podcast for the Star Wars Disney Plus show, Andor, Season 1, Episode 7, Announcement. In this episode, we'll be discussing our overall thoughts on the episode before moving into a scene-by-scene breakdown. Before we get started, a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. And if you want to keep talking Star Wars with us, join us on the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description below, and at baldmove.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed to get all our content about Andor, The Rings of Power, The White Lotus, and other upcoming shows. And please, if you have a moment, rate and review our podcast to help other people find it. This season of Andor, we're covering the future episodes by Major Story Arc. You can expect our coverage of episodes 8 through 10 after episode 10 airs. Now, let's get into our overall thoughts on this episode. John, what did you think of episode seven announcement? It was good. Um, I, you know, I was worried going in that after two epic arcs where we had basically a movie each, um, it would be hard to match that level of excitement and hard to match that rise and fall that we've been trained to expect from Andor so far. Right. But... I will say that I was glued to my TV the whole time in a different way. Uh I think that we got to see behind the curtain of what's happening with Luthen, with Mon Mothma, um, with Vel even, and see what's going on behind the scenes. And that was really cool to see. And I think we needed this episode to bridge the gap between these these big moments. Because you look at Rings of Power. Yeah, I, you know, we've been talking about that a lot, so it's on the mind. <laughs> we've looked at it a lot. And and my issue with Rings of Power, my biggest issue storytelling-wise was they're not giving me enough moments. They're not letting me see into these characters' heads. Right. And to this episode, I saw into Mon Mothma's head, uh-huh. and that was really great to see. Right. Uh, what did you think, David? I was on the edge of my seat this entire episode. I didn't know what to expect. When we, when I read some news and we saw one of our, um, one of the friends of uh, of ours on Discord in the channel noted that you know they oh the seven was going to be this standalone before the the next two arcs. I'd been sort of crafting in my head, well, what could they do? Could they do some sort of action sequence? You know, like what? How are they going to bridge? Is this going to be like a bottle episode thing? 
And, you know, we talk a lot about table setting or place setting episodes in uh, some of these big prestige shows, you know, these these big title shows. And this is a place setting show or episode, but it was so expertly done and they contained the place setting so well, like, so we don't have, oh, it's like two place setter episodes back to back and now we're going to get the penultimate and, you know, see. No, they they made this one episode the entire place setter and yet they had me on the edge of my seat the entire time and i was bowled over several times at some of the dialogue and the intimate character moments that we had so i was just i loved this episode i thought it was just fabulous yeah no i i'm totally with you so i'm excited to get into it what do you say we start this scene by scene breakdown Sounds great. Do you want to start with a scene reading and we'll trade off, I guess? Sure. Sure. Okay. That sounds good. Cool. All right. So first off, we have Karn and his mother sitting in her apartment and arguing over his approach to his upcoming interview with the Bureau of Standards that Uncle Harlow got for him. Uh, Karn also sees a TV report of the Aldani attack. So um, before we talk about Karn and his mother and some other things, I just, the opening shot of this sequence was gorgeous. That blue light that was coming in through his window and we see his room, this sort of bare cubicle with these three action figures on the shelf. <laughs> but the just from a visual standpoint, the blue light and the way that they rim lighted him with that was just gorgeous. And it set the tone and it set the mood for what this character is dealing with. It's, it's kind of a depressing arc with Karn this episode. Uh, and you see sort of the direction he's going in and how he's thinking to himself, do I go with the flow? Do I fall into the banality of evil? Or do I go and be sort of an evil superhero? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that he's biding his time for now, but I don't think this is the last we're going to see of Karn. Not at all. And I there's a, a great little moment where his mother points out his suit, his brown suit, has been altered in some way. She's like, what did you do to it? And he's like, she's like, oh, the call, you know, then they get into the collar thing. And he's like, oh, I had it tailored. Well, that's what he said to his commander back for uh, Prolox when he was a, when he was a, um, right. when he was a corp. And uh, he had his uniform tailored there. Now, this is going to quickly jump us to a, a next scene, but the, they, they talk about his collar, and then they jump to Deirdre and her uniform, and then there's a close-up tight shot of her collar in the next scene. Yeah, you know, for, first of all, yeah, I totally love that callback to the first episode with the collar. Um, with the with the tailoring, yeah, and tailoring. His mom's kind of right, I think. Yeah, but I don't think his mom realizes that she's the reason why he needs that attention. <laughs> of course not. She's his mother. She, she, everything's right according to her. Yeah, no, that she's totally the reason he has this level of insecurity. Um, but you know what? My guy likes to look good, so so kudos to him, and so does Dedra. Yes, because Dedra is getting herself together while we listen to. Uh, well, why don't you tell us? <laughs> Uh, yeah, here, let's see. Dedra goes through her routine while audio plays of Yularen's address to the ISB about Aldani and the Empire's response, which includes a heavy tax on anyone harboring partisan groups, a threat of an end to tolerance for religious and cultural groups, and a new ISB access to military resources, a.k.a. the, well, let's see, let's not get too real. In the Star Wars universe, we're looking at Star Destroyers. Thankfully, we don't have that those in the real world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, and, and you see that later in the episode already. You have Star Destroyers, you have droids, you have a level of militiz- militarization yeah. that you have not seen on planet side in a long time. What did you think of this uh, um, more senior ISB commander uh, giving them their marching orders? Yeah, no, I liked it. I thought that it was a great way to sort of say, you guys are the real heroes. It's uh, a big Homelander energy. And uh, they, they're they saying, you know, you're going to have all the military resources you need. You're going to have Star Destroyers everywhere. You're going to have droids everywhere. You're going to be able to beat people up whenever you want. Um, and it was sort of a great tone-setting moment for the rest of the episode because we see how that's affecting ordinary people as the episode goes on. Uh, what about you, David? Yeah, the banality of evil raises its head again here. I, you know, there, it was it's such technocratic speak. I even wrote down the uh, acronym, but I, um, I didn't get all of the words. But it was like P O R D, I think something. Oh yeah. And I was just like, oh, isn't that just so bureaucratic to come up with a. Uh, acronym for you know this this policy this process and it was so coldly delivered and so calculated and it had so much historical relevance the whole thing about um uh, we were talking about Hannah Arendt the other day um, and the dictator's dilemma is uh, one of these things where you know uh, dictatorships have a problem with information flow because everything gets siloed and it uh, even goes back to Tolkien evil cannot trust itself right mm-hmm. and so uh, you have this problem where you we a, a problem for dictatorships is they become blind and they can't see no I'm having a lot of trouble managing my dictatorship I don't know about you <laughs> huge huge problems um, and and later on we even see that that ar- arises in a, in a later scene but uh, yeah this is a great setup for for what's going on with the ISB. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Um, I I really enjoy especially the way that they organize this episode generally because it is tough to do a standalone episode in a series where you've trained the audience to expect sagas. Yeah. And uh, I I really like how they sort of evolved the idea of increasing security, of patriot acting, the Star Wars universe, uh, etc. That was awesome. Yeah. So, and I, I really loved the ending scene there where Deidre is having sort of this um, moment of crisis where she's like, oh, we're playing right into the rebels' hands. Right. And her assistant says, well, what would you call it? She says, an announcement. So she titles an episode for us. And then we cut right to Luthen listening to the radio. And I love that little connection. Like, where do we listen for announcements? Well, on the radio. Right. It was. Right. It's a brilliant little piece of um, television making. And, and Deidre's scene is is surrounded by two versions of people listening to the attack. You have Karn on the front end and then Luthen on the back end. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's good pickup. Yeah, totally. And uh, there she is in the middle of it, uh, uh, dealing with uh, the fallout from it. Well, that opens up the next scene then. We've got Luthen listens to a news report about the attack before an unexpected visit from Mon Mothma. Luthen denies his involvement with the Aldani attack, but eventually relents. Mon Mothma alludes to a meeting that night. Luthen says it's time to force the Empire to be drastic. What did you think of this scene, John? Oh, it was excellent. I, I love that, you know, we talk about evil can't trust itself, but the rebellion kind of can't oh, trust itself. Either. You know, nobody can actually speak their mind to each other. Yeah. And I, I, I know I clocked that when Luthen at first said, you know, he was he was kind of laughing it off. No, of course I wouldn't do something like that. I'm like, wait a minute, why are you lying to her? I thought you guys were in cahoots. And 
Later, I think even Luthen's um, assistant says, well, I hope she's worth it. And it's like, oh, so they're playing Mon Mothma even. And Mon Mothma is playing Tay later. Yes. And she plays Tay like Luthen played her. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you exactly who I am or what I want to do, but I will tell you that it might be worth your while. The acting that Stellan Skarsgård is laying out in this is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. When he hands her the weapon and says, you know, what's the line? Uh, Has anyone ever made a weapon that hasn't been used? And it's like, (laughs) whoa, like the double speak there just floored me. It was like, he's talking about this thing. I mean, he's play acting for the driver at the same time as he's delivering a message to Mon Mothma that this is how... My little sector of the rebellion, how I'm going to drive things, this is how, this is the tone, this is the way we're going. We're building a weapon and we're going to use it. Stellan Skarsgård just generally is presenting a masterclass here. I mean, the the way he moves in and out of the jovial oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. antique shop runner is, and, and this very serious rebellion leader is just incredible. I mean, he sells both so well, yeah. and the transition is like that. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's 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 a it's a thing to behold. It's it's gorgeous. What do you think about the fast revolution versus slow revolution? Um, who is our political philosopher on Aldani? I'm blanking his name again. Oh, Nemec. Yeah, Nemec. So Nemec if we remember, was talking about, well, you know, isn't it crazy? Like the empire is like, you know, we're flooded with all these different little atrocities and we're all, we're kind of blind to it and they're sort of slowly choking us. And what has Luthen done? He's, he's forced the empire's hand to come down more drastically so that people really see and feel uh, the boot that's on their neck. Well, I mean, that's a real debate in the real world. And, and when you have, when you are looking at a totalitarian regime, that is, just doing little enough evil, little enough aggressive evil to spark a resistance. How do you get the people to resist when they're kind of comfortable, lulled into this sleep? They're choking us, and we've, we're not even noticing it anymore. And um, I think we see Luthen's fervor here um, and his ruthlessness and when Mon Mothma is like, you know, people will suffer. And he's like, that's the plan. It's like, whoa, this dude is ice cold yeah. and, you know, uh, ice water running through his veins. But I think, you know, it, there's a case for both sides because, yes, people will suffer. More people will suffer in the short term because of Luthen's plan. But arguably, fewer people will suffer in the decades to come right. with Luthen's plan. So it's it really is an ethical dilemma and it's delightful to watch on screen. Yeah, absolutely. And let's just hope we, we don't face too many of those real-world situations ourselves. Right. Back to, to Stellan Skarsgård here really quick, too. I don't know if you tracked this, but when Mon Mothma was flying away and he they had a close-up of his face, his eyes tracked, his face and eyes tracked up as if he were watching her ship fly away. And I was like, Wow. Like, I, you know, I don't know if they had a little green ball and a stick that somebody, you know, did that. But, like, he just sold every inch of that scene in his body, his mannerisms, his voice, the look in his eye. Amazing. Let's have him on the podcast. I, man, that would be amazing. That would be a great get. That would How would you get. like them apples? As, I, uh, would act, I would like them apples a lot. Next up, we have 
uh, Karn at the Bureau of Standards doing an interview and having a tour. Uh, he's sort of uh, hinted at that he should explain why he left his previous employer, and he gives a very, very incriminating <laughs> response about how he there's a, a criminal on the loose, and he tried to get him, and people died, and uh, I'm here to clear my name, and and the guy's just like, okay, maybe we should just remove some of that from your resume. <laughs> And he offers him a job in fuel purity. I was, uh, I, I was, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Why just zip your lip? Just go to your pod and sit down. Like, you, you know, we've used the term venting care. spleens yes. on this podcast before. Um, that was a spleen venting, if I've ever seen one. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, like you know, he's like I said, I think he's got PTSD, and and he's. He's still processing, and so like anybody comes near him, he's just gonna like vomit out. You know, he's just gonna vent his spleen all over them. And th this interviewer is like, "Sir, we have cubicles here. <laughs> Here's yours. How did you watch uh, Severance? I did. How how many on on a scale of uh, one to ten? What was your Severance vibe uh, for this scene? Oh, Severance vibe for this scene. I was gonna say I love Severance, but. Um, Severin's vibe for the scene, uh, pretty close, except I guess he, he'll still remember that his mom hates him while he's at work. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. The, the, just the cubicle-ness of it all really just gave me, uh, gave me those kinds of feels. Yeah. Okay, so then we uh, jump to a hooded woman walking through uh, various areas of Corsican, following some markings. Good spycraft there. And, uh, oh, we, this is a little montage scene. And then we've got uh, Deirdre gets called Sir when she goes in to ask for some reports. So it's a great little comical moment here. And then we have uh, Cinta pulling the cover off a really janky speeder as a Star Destroyer flies over her in, on Aldani. Good montage. Not a lot happened, of course, but uh, we, we get some minor developments that set up the next scenes. Yeah, I uh, I loved the the way that this show is playing comedy. So like we've got obviously House of the Dragon is very dark right now uh, and it's excellent, but it's dark and there's not a lot of humor in it to be found. Come on, man, we got feet everywhere. Oh no. <laughs> So this show arguably is just as dark in, in many ways, yet we're getting nice little sprinklings of humor here. And this scene of, of this, uh, uh, what was his name, attendant somebody, uh, sleeping on the job and then sort of being given this uh, double super secret, you know, uh, records request thing was just pure comic genius. And uh, I just love the fact that the showrunner and the writers can give us these little moments of levity, even though here we are, the internal security bureau of the empire, my, my God, and yet they can find this little moment of, of humor to, to keep our spirits up as we're watching this. Yeah, no, the, the, the humor in the show is perfect. It's not too much. It's not too little. Yeah. Great shot of that Star Destroyer flying. I mean, could you imagine something like that overhead? Uh, unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Crazy. So the hooded woman then. Yes. We learn that the hooded woman is Luthen's assistant, Clea. Yep. Uh, who then meets with Vel, and they discuss the losses of the team. Uh, then Clay orders Vel to find and take care of Cassian. What's going on with this, David? So 
At first, when they showed her walk, getting off that uh, public transit thing and walking through, I was like, oh, cool, new character. Who's this? You know, I'm going to have to, like, make my notes and stuff. She had big, young Carrie Fisher vibes. Oh, did she? I was going to add, that's right in my notes here. Uh, she codes like Leia, exclamation point. Yeah. Yep. When when we first had when she's first talking to to um, Kel, I was like, God, that looks like Leia, and I don't. Know, I wonder if that's intentional or not. I for a second I thought it was a deep fake, like they did in uh, uh, in Rogue One, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I don't know if they're playing with something here. They're playing with us a little bit, you know, emotionally to uh, contrast again more. This is this isn't your you know this isn't your father's Star Wars. Yeah, this is a very interesting shot. Uh, this is a very morally great thing that that uh, Clea orders Vel to do, and is not really something that you expect in Star Wars. I think you know. I think of the Last Jedi, and um, I don't want to go too deep into the the debacle that people were complaining about with that. But one of the things that made me like the Last Jedi was. I felt that that was the first main Star Wars movie where we got some pushback on the Jedi being good, yeah, on being purely good. And I, I want to see more of that in Star Wars. I want to see people make tough, morally great choices for things that they think are right. And I want to see good people falter because they are human beings and they make mistakes. And this is one where you say, I get why Clay is ordering this. But boy, is this icky. The other thing that I ha- I'm, I'm curious about is um, why didn't Vel return the sky crystal? Hmm. I mean, Cassian was very clear, like, give this back to your man. And Luthen was very clear, I want this back. And so if Vel didn't deliver that and deliver that message that Cassian, you know, did his job, took his cut, gave the sky crystal, you know, he, he did what he said he was going to do, then if Vel didn't deliver that, that's a problem. I'm wondering if Vel was thinking that maybe Clea is operating on her own and saying, where is he? Yeah. Where is Luthen? Because I have something to give to him and I need to talk to him. Oh, that's a good point. Good point. And she didn't want to give him the sky crystal. Okay, so that's some good headcanon. Well, you know what? I, I will say this show has done a good job of solving the mysteries it presents uh, in a way that other shows that don't rhyme with Schmings <laughs> of Schmauer uh, have not always done. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So let's jump to the next scene. Marva wakes up to an intruder who turns out to be Cassian. Marva tells Cassian that Ferrix is now under Imperial authority and that Tim Carlo turned him in. Cassian tells Marva that they can leave and he's got enough credits. Marva seems like she's like, uh, she's like placating him a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. We'll leave in the morning. All right. Yeah, no problem. Um, what do you think of, uh, I, I thought Cassian was so childlike in this scene. He was like, look, mom, like, I, you know, I, I solved our problems. Let's go. We can go. We can go. And, you know, which is a very contrast, a, a, a very interesting change for a character who has no problem pulling the trigger on somebody who is a you know potential threat to him i absolutely loved the the combination of this scene and the following scene with marva Uh um, because i think that it really adds a dimension to cassian like you're saying yeah i think that cassian has clung to marva his entire life and sees her as home uh-huh. More than any planet, more than any location or people, Marva is mom and Marva is home. Yeah. And um, the idea that 
Marva is now trapped in a military state, but understands that that's everywhere now. And Cassian just doesn't get it because he's been yeah. causing the military state. Yeah. And he's a man on the run, right? He's not right. looking for. Yeah. It's it, it's really, really great writing. What do you think of B2EMO, otherwise known as B? He's fun. He's fun. The droids are always fun. This one's no different. Has he wormed his way into your heart? I wouldn't go that far. He's a little wide to worm his way into my heart. Um, okay, then let's see. We've got Mon Mothma hosts a dinner party, and she meets with Tay Colma. The two try to sense where each other's political allegiances are. Mon Mothma reveals that she has learned from Palpatine and that she's showing the world a different version of her. She wants him to be the chairman of a charity front for an undisclosed real cause. Perrin, her husband, is clueless. Or is he? This was the best scene in the episode. You think so? I think. That, that's what I would say. How about you? Uh, I'm down for the, the Marva-Cassian uh, conversation coming up, but this was uh, a tight second. I absolutely love the smile, you know, uh, just her <laughs> so, so conscious of appearances. Yeah. And so, you know, look at the stone in my hand and not the knife going into your neck. Oh, my God, was that a good line? Because she was describing exactly what she was doing, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> and the fact that he says, you know, you wouldn't like. Uh, how I, I forgot how he phrased it, but basically how far my politics have swung. Yeah, my politics are a bit strong for your taste or something, right, something along yes, those yes. lines. Yeah. Yes, perfect. And then she sort of smirks. There's just the slightest smile. Mon Mothma, the actress, is just killing it. And um, she has the slightest smirk, and then she knows that she can be open with him. But yet she chooses to still be a little bit cautious. She basically gives him a little nudge that, yes, this is for some kind of anti-imperial uh, activity, but she doesn't give him all the incriminating evidence. I really appreciated how they staged this scene too, because it's a very it's a very close mirror to how Luthien played her, as I, I mentioned when we were talking about that scene. You're back in Tolkien world, man. You're going Luthien again. Oh, did I say Luthien, Luthien again? Okay, <laughs> it's all Galadriel. Um, when Luthien, you know, used the you know smile, you know, and she did the same thing to Tay. And um, she, I, there was a question, you know, it was like when he was, when she was talking to, to Luthen earlier, there was a question, does she have the spine for this? And then we see this scene with Tay and her spine is made of titanium. She is on it. She is a woman with a mission. And yeah. this guy, she's marked this guy as a integral part of, of her plans. You know, I loved also that Tay, you know, if we talk about Cassian being business leal, I think that Tay is uh, business charming. You know, he's <laughs> he say he says, well, I'm a banker. I'm not very original. That was that was a, a very charming line. I really like Tay. Yeah. And and rebellions are expensive. Yeah. You know, and uh, you need a good banker. And uh, I think she's playing it level. And the, the whole construct that she's has that she's a nuisance to the empire. And that she's protecting, you know, do-gooders and doing all this sort of quasi-charitable work. A really great setup for, like, you know, when you tell a lie, you want a lie to be as close to the truth as possible, right? Or at least right. that's what they say. That's what I've heard. <laughs> um, and uh, so she's she's doing stuff. And she's doing stuff that's, you know, for some people might be very important. And it's a great cover 
uh, and especially when it comes to money, being able to move money to use a, a, a charitable organization to do that, I think is a, a really clever play. Well, this is another fascinating part of this is that it is her money yes. that she's just oh, been yeah. unable to access. Right. Because it's not because I, I at first was thinking, oh, he's a banker. She's going to ask him to, to basically find money somewhere and get it to her. No, no, no. She's just saying I'm being monitored so closely that I need you to help me launder this stuff. Launder it for a good cause, which is kind of funny. This is the opposite of Walter White. <laughs> Do you think did there were a couple times when I was watching Tay's re- facial reactions and a couple times it seemed like he was excited by the prospect. Yes. And then there were other times where he was like a little unsure. And then at the end of the scene, I was left a little unsure about Tay as well. Can we really trust him? I think so. I think when he was looking unsure, and I could, I should do a rewatch of this, but um, I think when he was looking unsure, it was when he was still trying to feel out her politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that as soon as he... As soon as she said, my politics are a little strong for your taste, his line back to him, all of a sudden, he his whole body language relaxed. Yeah. So I think that he is on the, rebe- the, the rebel side. Either that or he's like, oh, now I got the dirt on you. I can go to the emperor. <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering is this like, you know, is he is he plugged into other things that we don't know about? And is he a, is he part of how how how? How wide is the emperor's net? What did she say? The vizier, the grand vizier has infiltrated my meetings or something. I, I thought that was an interesting line. It was a little bit of a throwaway. Yeah. But I think it it, it points to something else. Well, he's either 100% good or 100% bad. So we can rest on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and again, another one of those open questions, which as so far, seven episodes in, as you uh, pointed out, they're not playing mystery box with us. If there is a mystery, uh, we're getting some resolutions to them. So, Thank you. Thank you so much, <laughs> showrunners. Exactly. Because you know what? I, for one, I'm just going to say it. I'm tired of mystery box shows. I've had enough of them. Stop doing it. We saw Lost. We all saw Lost. We don't need it anymore. Lost did it for like 60 years where the mystery boxes move on. I think even uh, Twin Peaks was the uh, was that an OG mystery box show? Hmm. Well, and, and then you got Westworld. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have that problem with this show. All right. So next we have Cassian again, and he's visiting Bix, who has a head wound and is troubled by the new imperial state of Ferrix. She tells him to get as far away from there as he can. Cassian asks about Luthen, but Bix doesn't know anything about him. Cassian leaves credits to cover his debts, and then he overhears stormtroopers and has a flashback to his adoptive father, Clem, being executed by Imperial forces. What'd you feel about Clem? I thought that it was a very poignant moment, and I thought that the flashback, which sometimes can be a real cheap device in television shows, I thought it was employed very, very well in this scene. And I would guess that uh, maybe if I got it a third watch, where Cassian was hiding when he was sort of ducking away from the stormtroopers was the exact same place where that that general area was the the same place where his adoptive father Clem was, um, I guess, murdered by the by the Imperium. The the sound of the stormtroopers footsteps as he's as as modern day Cassian is hiding 
probably the smells, the sights, like it brought back a, a real strong memory for him. And rather than giving us a, a cheap, oh, this is exposition in the form of flashback, they gave us character motivations. And as you said, seeing into Cassian's head a little bit more uh, in a really well set up scene. I agree with you that the flashback was great. I think that it was extra good because they tied it into the next scene. I think without that, um, without that follow-up, it would have been a very confusing flashback. So I'm glad that then he goes on to discuss Clem briefly with Marva. Did you, um, this is a little, uh, I don't know what, if you could, if this is a member Barry or just good, good, uh, historical accuracy, the showrunners doing their jobs, um, that the marching stormtroopers in the flashback scene, their helmets were of the, and somebody can write in and, and let us know which era that might have been by the style of the helmets, but the style of the helmets on the stormtroopers was the older Republic style. Yeah, that looked like Clone War style. Okay, yeah. I yeah, thought it was a no. really, really nice touch detail there. No, no listen, I, I forgot to mention it on the first episode, but I was the perfect age to watch the Clone Wars animated series when I was a kid. Ah, and okay. I did. I have no memory of it at all, but I remember watching <laughs> okay. it every single week when nice. it came out. Uh, I've recently started Rebels because I want to bone up on my Star Wars lore a little more if we're going to keep talking about this. Uh, very good show so far, animated, uh, a little a little different vibe uh, than this show, but uh, I, I've heard that there's going to be some overlap, so this is very exciting. Cool. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Now, we don't see Clem's death actually happen, but then we have sort of a, a, a flashback crossover scene here later with Marva talking about Clem being strung up. And then we see um, some swinging feet as a young boy goes to charge a, a group of stormtroopers. And I thought that that was an interesting thing because the initial flashback moment had ended and yet this was a continuation of that flashback in another upcoming scene. Um, and they're, they're definitely connected and move us forward in a way. And we really, I think, feel Marva's pain there when we see Clem's feet in the frozen ice sort of hanging uh, there. I, it, was, it was really effective. Um, uh, it really affected me, I should say. Yeah, I mean, the storytelling was incredible there. I have one detail that I was just totally unclear about, which is... Uh -huh. It seemed like the stormtroopers were going firing squad on Clem. Yeah. And then Marva's like, no, he was hung or he was hanged. But she didn't say that. She said it was strung up. So I, what I'm piecing together here is that he was shot by firing squad and then they left him up to send a signal. Do you yeah. think that's right? That's roughly my headcanon. Whether exactly how uh his death happened um they, they definitely strung him up as a um as yeah. a warning to other people i think that the main point is that it was done in an extremely cruel way um and a way yes. to send a message to the people of ferrix absolutely what did you make of um jumping back over to the conversation with bix uh i loved the uh comment that cassian makes about uh, Bix's father catching him climbing over that same wall. So they go back. <laughs> yeah, 
um that they're they're longtime friends lovers etc yeah obviously they dated at some point and uh and, and that's where tim's jealousy came from probably yes that was a good explanation yeah because i was a little confused i was like you know first of all snitches get stitches but also you know this seems like you know that your girlfriend is in on something a little fishy and you're gonna bring the cops into it that's kind of crazy if you don't have a good motivation so this was a great uh a great sort of tying the knot tying the bow on the package for me yeah uh tim's jealousy really got the the best of him uh here and um i remember there was a scene in i forget one of the early episodes where tim is like well she's upset and it seems like every time you come around you're you know that she gets upset and he's like well you got to find a, a less complicated woman or, or something to that effect i can't remember exactly and and cassine was playing it off like hey buddy it's you know hey we're you know we we're we're buddies and he even says hey good to see you tim and tim is just not having it he the green monster has him he's a full he's fully thrilled to the uh to the jealous the jealousy monster uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting is when Cassian pays back his debts. Yes, it shows us that, and and, and it was a, it's the same thing when he's trying to get a message back to Luthen um, that he's a man with a code, and he he does what he says that he's going to do, even if <laughs> you know as a sort of a, a, a scam artist, long conny type guy, whatever he is still a, he. It's important to him that he is a man of his word. Well, he always finishes the job, I think. You know, yeah, he right. uh, he takes a job and he takes it to its end and then he moves on, hopefully. And I don't think he's going to move on so well from the rebellion, but uh, I guess that's his, his uh, plan. So the next scene here is the is my favorite scene out of this um, of this episode. Um Marva tells Cassian she isn't going with him. She says that Ferrix has been hiding long enough and it's time for a rebellion. She was inspired by the attack on Aldani, and she tells him to take his money, find peace, and find peace. She tells him she loves him and to stop searching for a sister, and it's time for uh, him to let that go. She picks up a rifle as he leaves the apartment. The rifle. The rifle was just the perfect cherry on top of that scene. Yeah. It's just Marva is taking a side. Marva, I loved her line, um, I'm done waiting here to die. Mm. She just has no Fs left to give. Right. Yeah. And I love that she was inspired by Cassian and doesn't even know it. (laughs) He must be, uh, like, uh, you know, he was just participating in a ride. He was just trying to get paid. And yet, here it is, that job has backfired because he was going to take her away from this place. And it's just got to gut him. But you can also see his kindness in the fact that he does not shatter that image for her. He could say, yeah. no, I was a mercenary for that. They, I did it because they paid me. Uh-huh. It, wasn't, it wasn't some dream. Well, it was for Nemec, but it wasn't yeah. for him. And uh, he chooses to leave that in his head and let her believe what she wants to believe. And I think that shows us that side, that softer side of Cassian. I, I really love... Marva's acceptance of him as well, you know. <laughs> I don't want to get all emotional here, but like on a on the uh, <laughs> emotional resonance meter, I was like a six and a half seven. My eyes were wet 
Uh, I did not have tears falling down my face, but I had uh, I had definite weepies going on. Um, you know, the the way that she expresses to him that she's never loved anything more in the way that she loved him and that um, you can't stay and I can't go. I mean, what dr- amazing dramatic tension, you know, talking back uh, before about like what is good TV and what is bad TV. Here are two characters who are who are being moved by who they are as their character and that natural conflict that arise, uh, arises from that is just so powerful in this moment where she's like, this is an intractable choice. You, you cannot be here and I cannot leave. And that's just the way it's got to be. And I like that she didn't go Uncle Ben on him. Mm-hmm. She didn't say with great power comes great responsibility. She said, <laughs> you have been through pain yeah. and you deserve a happy ending. Yeah. So take that money and, and, and go. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect scene. I loved some of uh, the point of view shots, too, of uh, B. They gave us some different angles and sort of there was even one frame shot where Marva goes over to water some of the hanging plants and Cassian's across the room from her and B's perfectly framed in the middle and he's sort of this pseudo child and he's watching this uh <laughs> argument among the adults and he's like and then like she says something about like well you know um uh sort of she makes a comment about uh, a, a sort of a fatalistic comment and you they cut to b really quick and he kind of goes and like you know dips his eye a little bit and uh i just <laughs> they're using b i think really effectively to add an extra uh, emotional element to this whole show yeah no, uh, the droids are good. Droids are good in Star Wars. They've always been used pretty well, and uh, B's no exception. All right, where are we going next? Well, we've got to go back to the baddies. So we have Partagaz uh, receiving some reports from the ISB leadership team. Uh, Blevin accuses Dedra of violating protocol. He's lodging a public complaint. He's saying, J'accuse. <laughs> he accuses her of violating these protocols, so she reveals... That she pushed boundaries, she uncovered a coordinated rebel effort to distribute equipment. Uh, and Partagaz reassigns Blevins' sector containing Ferrix to Dedra. What did you think about this whole uh, dueling accusations? Um, uh, this Now that you... Or we start talking about the scene, I almost have to step back. We have three big scenes in this, three monumental or, or pivotable, 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 I can't say it. Dang it. Pivotal? Pivotal, thank you. Uh, it's okay, we got there. Uh, pivotal scenes in this episode. I think we have um, on Mothma's dinner party, we have the conversation between um, Cassian and Marva, and then we have this scene with the ISB. And uh, well, I'd say the conversation with Marva was, you know, really pulled at me uh, emotionally. Um, the Mon Mothma scene was just beautiful and it was elegant in its, it, it was just sort of a, a, a rock wrapped in silk kind of thing. You know, like they're plotting some serious stuff among this, in this gorgeous, you know, uh, uh, cocktail party. But this scene with Deirdre and the ISB Damn, that was so well exited. Deirdre stood her ground. She was not having it. And <laughs> what would, it do? would you like your your uh, your uh, credibility ventilated in public? <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> damn, that was so good. Such good writing. 
I will say, though, that that actor was really good at looking like she just shat her pants mm-hmm. while she's doing it, which yeah. I think was the right performance. Yes. I, w- I would not have bought it if she was just calm, cool, and collected mm-hmm. the entire time she was doing this. She was sweating. She was. She thought that part of Gaz was going to tear her a new one until he didn't. Right. And I think he... I think with that comment about vet, uh, ventil- being ventilated in public, it it's very uh, in character for Partagaz to say, you know, to use something like that. But I want, I don't wonder if that turn of phrase allowed her a little bit of latitude to repost and uh, you know bring out sort of a that that um, bring out her guns and say, okay, well, he seems very fixated on this, so um, I'd love to see what his evidence is. Right, and I do love that at the end, Partagaz pulls her aside and says, "Well done, but watch your back." Yeah, well, that's the yeah, yeah, master. The, and when uh, or when um, Partagaz uh, says to her, "Thesis, please," and uh, <laughs> she's got to deliver. And then uh, when he says, oh, "I forget the line," but it's basically like, "Oh yeah, you did a good job," and she's like, "What?" Blink, blink. She was really taken aback. All right, so let's move back to Cassian, who's going by Keith now. And he is pretending to shower while grabbing some credits from his pistol case. A woman's talking to him from a bed while he's doing that. Then he takes a walk along the beach, spotting Imperial drones already. So seeing the uh, surveillance state, Uh, he's interrogated by a shore trooper. Love the name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he is choked out by a droid, ends up at trial for a number of charges and gets sentenced to six years imprisonment under the new guidelines. Calm down, sir. You need to step back, sir. Yeah. Why are you running, sir? I'm not running. You know, you better not be. Like, like it was the perfect trap uh, that um, heavy-handed enforcement uses to just yeah. rouse people for no reason. It was so well um, played out uh, and, and just shocking in its brutality and banality. We own this planet. The, and the music, the way that they use the music to amp up the tension of the scene, uh, just as, you know, as those people are running by and the droids are flying over. And then when he gets um, rousted by the uh, the shore trooper, uh, again, just and, and the tonal shift, like, I mean, going from um, from all of the previous scenes to this, like they were showing the flamingos flying. I was like, what is going on here? This is a weird thing. And then, oh, Cassian's trying to live his best life. Right. He he actually listened to Marva, but Marva mm-hmm. was also extremely right that this is everywhere now and you can't run from it anymore. The comedy again, too, with the Imperial security droid <laughs> like holding him up there. Like Yeah. Hang? Uh, yeah, hang. And to be choked out by a metal droid hand, like that has got to be terrifying and painful. And yet it was kind of this comical, funny scene. Yeah, it was, uh, again, the comedy in the show is just the right tone. So, six years. <laughs> He's not staying there for six years. He, he literally can't with the Rogue One plotline, I'm pretty sure. No, and I think that's a, that'll be a nice um, sort of homage to Rogue One, too, about, may, oh, maybe we're going to get a prison break. Maybe that'll be one of our next little mini arcs. That would be cool. Yeah. So then we end with Karn sitting in his cubicle. And again, I just had uh, severance feels for that whole thing. Yeah, it's definitely big severance vibes. It's very depressing. 
I cannot see Karn sitting there the rest of the season. Otherwise, I have no idea why they included him as a character. <laughs> yeah, you know, they've got they've got plans for him. I'm, I'm of that. I'm certain. Yeah, and I and I really um, visually, you know, they gave us uh, the conversation about Karn's collar, and then they cut to Deirdre's collar. So I'm calling that. I'm putting some chips on the some internet chips on the table there, and uh, putting a bet down that they are going to um, get connected up at some some point in this storyline. He's just not as competent as her. <laughs> no, he's well, no, and I think that's a great contrast, right? Because she's very competent. Um, yeah. he's got the instinct to be that he's got that kind of fire. He's got that kind of drive, but he's hamstrung by, um, his upbringing and the voice of his mother in the back of his head, frankly. Yeah, no, I think that he is hamstrung by his upbringing, but also everybody has trauma and I'm sure that Dedra as a recent, uh, person from enforcement is no stranger to a lot of the same pressures that Karn has had. Yeah. But Dedra learned the right lessons from them, which is if you're going to do something, you have to make sure that all your paperwork is done and you have to make sure that you do it right. And that if you're going to break protocol, you are doing it in a way that is defensible. Whereas Karn says, someone made me mad and I'm going to go fight them. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. He was given specific orders too to to avoid it, where Dedra was also given some instructions, but she did it in a way that, like you said, is defensible. She had the receipts; she could show receipts when she got called. Well, and she didn't fly to Ferrex and try to hunt people down. She <laughs> did paperwork first. She actually did an investigation. Exactly, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that you see two different approaches to challenging leadership, and and it's funny because I'm just thinking as I'm watching the episode, I want to root for Dedra, even though she's on the mm. bad guy side. Like mm-hmm. I want to root for her as a character, um, which is something that I have not seen done with the Imperial characters in Star Wars before. Um, now I don't want her to kill all my friends. But I do want to see her, like, succeed. I would love to see her go to the light side. I think this is a really interesting thing that you're, you're saying here. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm trying to process while you're saying that. Like, I hadn't thought about the fact that I, I'm rooting for an Imperial officer. Right. Like, why is that? Have we ever done this in the history of Star Wars? Can they've all been sort of, you know, uh, um, faceless, jackbooted thugs who, you know, who serve sort of some short-term purpose, you know, mooks or, or you know, big uh, one-dimensional bad guys. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I really get. I want to watch. I'm going to pay attention to that a little bit more. And this this duality that they're giving us between Karn and Dedra. And where we're not rooting for Karn, and he's a, a, clearly a bumblefuck, where right. Dedra is like, she's sharp, and we want to see her sharpness rewarded, but do we really? <laughs> Listen, Karn is about to pop a blood vessel in his cubicle, just sitting there. <laughs> and Dedra needs to take stimmies just to be able to stay awake. Her, her blood pressure is like 90 over 30. She is <laughs> stone cold. She's stone cold. That is sure. Did you, uh, let me ask you this, um, when the episode ended, were you expecting that? Were you ready for the episode to end? No, I thought I thought for sure that something was going to happen in Karn. I thought he was going to stand up and say, look at us here. We're in misery and we have to go fight the Empire's war. Um, and 
no, that didn't happen. No, not at all. I was I was floored. I was like I was like, wait a minute. How long? I think it was like uh, I think the the episode is fifty three minutes with credits. I was like, wait, wait, what happened? Like I was just getting into this storyline and and it's over. What are you telling me that it's over? Uh, so again, really masterful job at at the 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 producers of this show are doing their job, and that is. I'm fully in the secondary world with these characters and oblivious to the primary world. <laughs> what time yeah. is it and, you know, what's going on? All right, David. So it seems like we've gotten to the end of this episode. I have a couple of things I want to not not episode notes, just open questions. I'm, I'm keeping a little log, a little journal here of things. Okay. Um, where is the sky crystal? That's something I want to know. I want to know what Cinta is up to. Hmm. I wanna. I'm curious about Mon Mothma's daughter. Why was she wanting to be excused? It seemed like she was having some some emotional distress, something going on. I mean, it could be just normal teenager stuff. But uh, I'm curious as to what's going on with her, Casa's sister or Cassian's sister, and then the question about uh, Tay. Is he um, is he reliable or not? All right. So those are my uh, my open questions. I'm gonna be tracking uh, uh, these as we go through. So, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, just so glad to be following the show week to week. It has me captivated, and I can't wait for next Wednesday. So, a uh, question about um, uh, production here. We're going to be back with folks on our next podcast after episode 10. So, we're going to go 8, 9, and 10, which is three weeks away. So, our next podcast should be out around November 11th, 12th, sometime around then. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Uh, you might get the bug. We'll we'll definitely have that one. I'm saying we might add more. That's okay. that's my uh, that's my hint. Got it. Okay, so uh, un, uh, under promise, over deliver. Is that the yeah. is that the methodology here? Yeah, that's what I like to do. We're, we'll definitely promise something after ten, and if if we've got more, we'll come at you. Um, otherwise. John, uh, super cool that we're both enjoying the show and, and grooving on it, and I, I can't wait till next Wednesday. Yeah, same here. All right, uh, remember, send in your feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll see you the next time. The Andor Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>